This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. Things are going to change. The change is going to come when we least expect it. And that change will happen for a reason. A reason that's there to serve our spiritual resilience, writes Adam. Valeria interviews Adam Markle, the author of Change Proof, Leveraging the Power of Uncertainty to Build Long-Term Resilience. Best-selling author, keynote speaker, workplace expert, and resilience researcher Adam Markle inspires leaders to master the challenges of massive disruption in his new book, Change Proof. Adam is the author of the number one Wall Street Journal, USA Today, Los Angeles Times, and Publishers Weekly bestseller, Pivot, The Art and Science of Reinventing Your Career and Life. A leading international keynote speaker, he has reached tens of thousands worldwide with his message of resilience as the competitive edge in today's complex markets. An attorney, entrepreneur, and transformational trainer, Adam is a sought-after business culture catalyst who inspires, empowers, and guides organizations and individuals to create sustainable, high-performance strategies. Adam is also the CEO of More Love Media and host of the Change Proof podcast, where he shares his insights on pivoting and resilience, in today's fast-paced market and interviews experts, innovators, and influencers in the areas of business and life. Adam credits much of his success to the principles he learned during his eight years as a Jones Beach lifeguard in New York. As a first responder in a life-and-death environment, he learned the importance of cultivating a high-performance capacity and impeccable teamwork. He's found that the principles of this type of culture and leadership equally apply to any business that wants to build a competitive advantage to win. After building a multi-million dollar law firm, Adam pivoted his own career path to become CEO of one of the largest business and personal growth training companies in the world. Here, he learned that motivation and inspiration alone are not enough to effectively utilize change. It's about providing leaders, teams, and audiences with effective takeaways to sustain them over time. Meet Adam at adammarkle.com. Here's the interview with Adam Markle. In your own words, who is Adam Markle? What a what a question! <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure that people are, are taken. Um, to a, an interesting place to answer that question when when they start. I um, I'm just checking for myself. I'm scanning on what's coming up for me. I mean, I 
I am a unique individual, like we all are, and I am still discovering the aspects of myself that I don't understand and many things that I'm probably still unaware of. So I have these parts of me, as, as I think we all do, that are just yet to be explored. And that's exciting. I, I, I think the most intriguing or, or something that I, I truly love about myself is my capacity from time to time to be childlike in my enthusiasm and in my interest in things. And um, I hope that never ends. I hope that I have that right up to the very <laughs> the last second, uh, whatever the last second looks like. And, and, uh, and I don't actually believe there's a, a final, final second anyway, but, uh, but at least in this, in this body that I've been given, uh, for this, this round, I, um, I hope I, I maintain that, that childlike curiosity and enthusiasm for things. Um, and, and much of that is, is self-exploration. I love that answer, of course. It really sounds spiritual to me, as I have said off record. You wrote the book, Change Proof, Leveraging the Power of Uncertainty to Build Long-Term Resilience. And we'll be talking a lot more about the book. But I would love to hear from you the description of spiritual resilience, because that caught my attention in one of the sessions in your book, I think towards the end. Yeah, it stopped me. So I would love to hear a lot more about it. <laughs> what is spiritual resilience to you, Adam? Well, in, in, in talking about resilience and, and being a researcher of that topic, I, I do quite a bit of speaking, public speaking to organizations primarily, but, but other groups as well. Um, on the topic of resilience and, and our research on that topic. And, and one of the first things that I, I speak about is to say what resilience isn't. And we can talk about what it's not, but to answer your question, part of what it is, is that it's holistic. It's, it's not one thing. It's not something that is um, sort of an amorphous thing that we're born with or that some of us have and some of us don't have. It's actually in all of us and it's something that we can build. It's something that we can grow. It can be, be taught. It can be learned at any age, by the way, which is really remarkable as well. Um, and among the things that resilience is made of uh, is our thoughts. It's, it's mental. Uh, our resilience is also about our feelings. It's emotional. It's about our, our physicalness. It's, it's about how we are in our, in our physical bodies. So it is, it is that as well. And it is spiritual. Um, and, and when I, I speak about it in that way, I speak about it as mental, emotional, physical, and also spiritual. And people will, will sometimes say, so are you talking about religion? Or are you talking about those kinds of things that, that we might call spirituality? Um, and are you talking about faith? And I'm not. I'm not, even though I have a great deal of faith. I, I've sometimes said I'm a spiritual person. I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. And, and lately, I even um, have been more leaning into the the description of of who I am in, in that space as being someone of faith. I have a great deal of faith. I have faith 
and, and things we can talk about that too. But, but spiritual resilience is about alignment. It's about how aligned we feel on the inside, how congruent we feel, how grounded we feel, where, where we feel that we are on purpose and where we're lacking in that feeling of, of purposefulness, where we feel fulfilled by who we are and what we do and often what we do in the workplace uh, and elsewhere. These are the things that would f- would fall more in into that category of our spiritual resilience. You mentioned alignment. So purpose, it's a challenge for most of us to kind of live, experience this reality with a sense of purpose and a specific purpose. Because especially those who are uh, like myself, I love being open to life and kind of letting it flow without any strong sense of solidity that I know something or that I have arrived somewhere. So I'm always open. So when it comes to purpose, like what is your purpose now? Do you have one? Do you identify anything as a a solid purpose or it has been ever-changing? It has been ever-changing. And for a number of years, my my purpose, um, if I've stated it as such, is to be just just being is is my purpose. But I wanna I wanna maybe answer a question that's not being asked, but but I think would be important for people, which is that if if we struggle with purpose, and and many of us do, um, why is that? And and I am uh, somebody that went through. a good deal of my life without a lot of personal growth or or I shouldn't say personal growth, more intentional personal growth training or development. I didn't read. I wasn't, I wasn't a seeker. I wasn't looking to find myself. I went through a great many decades that way. Um, but when, when ultimately as, as a practicing attorney and having a very successful law practice for uh, almost two decades, I, I found myself uh, really empty, uh, feeling empty, feeling disillusioned with myself, feeling more than that, feeling um, a great deal of angst and even self-loathing that ultimately put me in the hospital with what was, was presenting as a heart attack, but was actually a panic attack. I, I had to evaluate uh, some things, or I started, I shouldn't say I had to, I chose to begin self-exploration by reading and, um, and reading some really wonderful books that, that sort of kicked off that journey for me and, and created a bit of a, of a breadcrumb path forward. Um, and, and, and what was wonderful was that in, in every instance where I was seeking to know more about myself and to explore these places in inside of me that were were very uh, dark, were unknown, were scary. Even um, it it led me to consider my life and to consider what I was doing in my life and and where I was where I was seeking fulfillment. And ultimately, I pivoted out of of, as I said, a very successful career as an attorney and reinvented myself. So I wrote a book in 2016 about that journey called Pivot. And that book was, was in essence how I uh, 
chose to reinvent my purpose. And ultimately, I think in the in the arena of personal development or personal growth, we are sometimes told a lie or or at least the, the thing that is a lie isn't isn't um, isn't uh, called out as as I think it, it can be and maybe ought to be. And that is that not always do we find our purpose in our work. And, and I know it might even sound sacrilegious to some folks that are or have been seeking that, have been at forever, you know, moving, pivoting, trying to find work, gainful work, a livelihood that is is really very much their reason for being. It's their purpose in life. It might even be why you were born. And there are examples of people that are living those two things simultaneously together in the same, the same, uh, in the same endeavor, they, they are finding both a livelihood, a, a way to pay their bills, a way to, to succeed financially, uh, in life and, and monetarily, and also are tremendously, uh, fulfilled and, and are executing upon their purpose and feel like this is the reason that they, ex- you know, that they were born in the first place. I just find that that is truly the outliers they're outside of the bell curve for, for most. And when we are not uh, in that situation, we don't find ourselves in that situation, it, we think something's wrong. And maybe even we're taught or told by some that there's something wrong. And that is confusing. So this question of purpose, I think, is a very good one. We all have a purpose, of course. I think fundamentally our purpose is to be, to exist. That's blessing of existence is enough. Uh, but yet, if we're also trying to make sure that the work that we do is, is uh, feels that way and, and uh, provides that dividend to us, I think there's some reason to pause there and question it. Because you can certainly have gainful employment and do work that is valuable in the world, ethical in the world, work that, that is uh, monetarily fulfilling to that is not your purpose that not the reason that you would say you were born that does not fulfill every aspect of of what of what you're you're craving and that's okay <laughs> it's really okay um, as long as you're also denying the part of you that is seeking to know more and to explore more and to go within and to find find more. That's those two things are not at all mutually exclusive in my experience. I usually ask a question, the opening questions about balance. What is your idea of balance? One of the chapters in your book has exactly that. It says the title is The Myth of Balance. So I would love to hear from you. What is your understanding of balance? Yeah, I'm so happy you asked that. I mean, it is one of those things that I'm frequently given the opportunity to address with my audiences because so many people in their in their work lives are seeking balance, a balance between their work and and their non-work. And I kind of call BS on that, so I'm not offended <laughs> yeah. to say yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, in the book, we were polite to say the myth of balance. Um, because I don't believe that when you, when I think of balance, I think literally of things that are equal on, on both sides, the way, you know, a seesaw might, 
might find balance for a moment, the way a person standing on a on a tightrope might find balance for for a for a few, a few short moments. Um, and and I think of the, of our lives as as being um, not not easily balanced. So it's it's like setting ourselves up for a failure, for struggle, for suffering, to seek something that is so if elusive. And um, and yet there is something that we can also seek that that is much more attainable, and that is harmony. So the myth of balance is that we're not after balance at all. It's just the words we've used, and, and language is important, uh, especially when when there's a concept behind that language. So it's it's not balance so much as it is harmony. I I would never, and maybe maybe you you would feel differently about this. I doubt it though. Um, I, I wouldn't season my food with exactly the equal amount of of spice of one spice or another. I wouldn't I wouldn't go you know three shakes of salt to three shakes of pepper you know just to create balance in my diet or in my in the food in the dish that I'm making. You know that. We get that that's not what we do. We season it to our taste. And so sometimes that means no salt at all for me these days. It means more pepper, and I love pepper. Um, but it's a blend, and that's ultimately what I think is truly attainable, is that we create the right blend, the right mix. The, the yin and yang is not, is not a, a concept of balance. It's a concept of harmony, of blending things of feminine and, and masculine and, and other things of light and dark and, and all that. So, um, blend is, is I think more attainable. And when I, again, will speak to an audience, a corporate group often about resilience, it is about how it is that we blend the things that we do more effectively so that we have greater energy to outperform the places in our lives where we're being challenged. We're being challenged left, right, and center. We know that. Um, and that's not going to likely decrease the intensity of that will likely only increase as well as the velocity of the change and disruption that is in our world. So with that being the landscape, that, that's the context. How do we address that? Well, for starters, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't seek something like balance that would only frustrate us and be um, so so uh, short lasting but rather seek this concept of harmony that we can work on, this idea of how we blend things in order to then therefore be able to be more resilient in the face of all of that, all those uncertainties. That's a beautiful concept that I yeah, absolutely agree with. Also because we are so unique, as you mentioned earlier, I think one of the first phrases you use, I am unique like all of us. So because of that, we need different kinds of ingredients <laughs> to make something work for us. That makes so much sense. Thank you for saying that, Adam. Yeah. Our recipe is, you know, there's no recipe for everybody. It's, it's not one recipe. It's, it's a recipe that's individuated. And that's, to me, that's magnificent and so interesting, really. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that we find our ways, right? All of us so differently. But, Ultimately, we, it seems like all of us want to be happy. We want to be at peace. We want safety. We have so many basic needs, and some of us find that, and some of us are still looking for it to find these things. 
But I often look for whatever it is that will give me the foundation Let's say for making a soup, speaking of recipes, ingredients, so the foundation would be water because that's how I see a soup, though very watery. So I'm often looking for what's holding all this together, all the aspects of me, of whatever called me. And I find it that it's, uh, I know you call it harmony. It's a beautiful word and idea too. I call it inner peace, peace, calm. You actually mentioned also, there's one chapter in your book, that I think you call it chapter 23, right? Calm is contagious. So that is something that I noticed that for me is like the foundation for everything I do, even the way being able to think clearly or see clearly, I need to be calm and to be at peace. So that is my the foundation ingredient for the recipe of my success, if I can call it at that, in the sense of life itself achieving what it's, it's here to achieve, feeling grateful for being, just being alive and being calm about, about everything that's happening. I, I start the book Change Proof with the story at the beach. Um, in fact, there's, there's sort of a through line, a thread that, that is, is operating in this book from the start, which is the water and the, the riptide, the rip current that is uh, a metaphor for change and how it is that we react when we're caught in this in this undertow of change which is fairly constant <laughs> you know so it's it's it really is interesting because as a lifeguard having spent many years before I went to law school um, I was I was exploring I was looking for what my right livelihood would be. And I was teaching at the time, teaching middle school English and had my summers free and was a lifeguard at a place called Jones Beach, which was uh, you know, on New York's south shore of Long Island. And these were very, very rough waters. And we would get literally hundreds of thousands of people that came out, flocked to the beach on hot days in the summer. And we would make hundreds of rescues each and every day when the rip currents were really, really strong. So I start the book with the story of that and how it is that calm is is such an important element in our resilience because it, it is it is contagious. Um, and and it's something that you could even see like visibly. We could see from the lifeguard stand, whether someone was going to respond to the, the change that they were experiencing, meaning they were standing in two feet of water, sun shining, it's a beautiful day. And the next thing you know, they're being pulled out from shore, pulled away from shore, what we used to call the suck as, as lifeguards, that was the term we gave to it. And then the next thing they're standing they're not standing and the, 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 the earth beneath them, the sand beneath them is no longer there. They're in five, or six feet of water and further from shore. And now the question is, how, how are they responding to that? Because for so many people, they would resist it and start to try to swim against the current, which is even for a very good swimmer, almost impossible to do in a rip current. So some of those folks would be calm and they would just float, knowing that they 
it was sort of futile to resist it and they would float on their back or what have you. And eventually the, the rip current would just sort of spit them out and they would have a little bit further to swim back into shore, but they, they had maintained their calm and their energy was there to, to be with them in that moment. And other people that would resist it and try to swim eventually became exhausted. And when they got exhausted, they were, they were no longer calm. They became panicked. And as soon as we could see that that was where things were headed, we were in the water already. We had our, our buoy and we were swimming out to them before they were actually ready to, to panic. And ultimately, once the adrenaline had run its course and the lactic acid built up and their arms were and their legs were exhausted, um, they were dangerous, very dangerous to themselves and to anybody around them. And so we were um, trained to be there before that occurred, get them on a buoy and calm, create a, a, a calm for them, knowing that they would be safe so that we could bring them to where they could stand. And as soon as, of course, as soon as you got to that place where they could stand again, uh, it was a clockwork. They pretended they never knew you, never saw you, never met you. You know, literally hit the sand and took off. <laughs> so they were a little, you know, a little embarrassed or what have you. Um, so it was a very interesting lesson that I learned about change very early when I was like 19 years old working at that beach. The question that comes to me is why do some of us have this... It's almost like it's natural for some of us to display those signs of resilience, of calm. But um, I know you mentioned in the book the markers of resilience, um, that they are not actually genetic or predisposed. It's a practice. But I have seen people around me that uh, since they were little children, they already had some of these qualities. They were calm human beings. So that makes me wonder if, um, yeah, that's a question. Why do some of us are more resilient than others? It seems to me naturally. Well, there's a wonderful study called the Adverse Childhood Experiences uh, Study that, that many, many doctors are aware of now. It's become more well known that when children experience trauma or experience adverse experiences early in life, they do develop coping mechanisms and, and a way to just simply deal with the world that's, that they have no control over. And those individuals do exhibit great resilience, greater resilience uh, than folks, believe it or not, that have not learned those coping skills through adverse experience especially in childhood. So there, so there is that. And we do see what markers of resilience look like. That, For as an example, uh, resilient individuals are those who can take a look at, at the experiences in their lives and glean some wisdom from them. They're able to look at those things and find a nugget of, of value in it, something that they're able to learn from, something that maybe even informs who they are in at that moment in their in their lives, and they see that as inherently good, as inherently positive. Um, they can reframe, in other words, some of the worst experiences of their lives, not to be Pollyanna, not to just look at things through some rose-colored glasses, but to see pragmatically how it is that those things have, have helped them and how it leads them to the place that they are 
in at that moment um, and makes them who they are. And that's a good thing. So they can see that inherent good in, in those experiences. So that's one of the markers that, that we see with resilient individuals. We often will start with the question, how resilient am I? How, how resilient are we individually and even sometimes organizationally? And we use a, a very simple tool that we created. It's a proprietary tool um, that's, that's quite simple as a form of assessment. It takes about three minutes. So it's very, very short uh, for people to just create a baseline for themselves to understand how resilient they are mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually. Um, and it's that baseline that helps us to know how much is there still for us to learn about resilience and where specifically are we lacking in resilience? Again, we spoke briefly about spiritual resilience, but the way we see it as something holistic, it is mental, it's emotional, it's physical uh, as well. So often people um, very simply can go to a, um, a URL. It's a, a, a free assessment. So we make it available to the public. Um, they can go to rankmyresilience.com or resiliencerank.com, either or resiliencerank or rankmyresilience.com. And in the span of th about three minutes, 16 questions, they will find themselves um, gaining an insight into their own level of resilience that is a baseline for understanding where it is that maybe there's a gap. Because I think ultimately our blind spots are the biggest challenges to ourselves. Like when, when I don't know what I should be working on, then it, it's the potential exists in that space for suffering and for pain. Um, my lack of self-awareness in my 20s and 30s created instances for me of, of, of pain because I, I made mistakes. I, I made decisions that were, that were based in part on, on ignorance and, and, and primarily not ignorance of the world, but just ignorance about myself. That if I had had greater awareness at that time, self-awareness, I would have been able to evaluate things differently. I would have had a different mechanism for making decisions that would have probably led to a little less pain. And even then, even in that instance, I don't look back and regret or, or wish it was different. Not really, because I understand that it's all of that that's helped me to be where I am today and to understand things um, differently. And I think, again, that's one of those markers of resilience that we don't we don't look back at things in our lives with regret, but we we see that they are inherently valuable even if part of the value that we've gained was through pain. I love this uh, perspective. It's a beautiful one when, when I think about it and talk about it here. And I wonder if this is um, going to the topic of purpose and meaning, oh, purpose. Are we really trying to kind of give purpose to life through those meanings that everything has a reason, that we went through this so we would be... Uh, where we are today. I often wonder if the, we are just making this up or it's really what life is all about. I mean, we, we are great story creators. <laughs> yes, we are. Very good. <laughs> yeah. Meaning making yeah. machines. So <laughs> yeah. So I, yeah. I think there's, there's always sort of a veil between 
what might be reality and what is just our reality. And I'm not sure I, I'm able to pierce that veil myself, except in moments of prayer and moments of stillness and meditation, I suppose, where I get a glimpse at, at what I would call real. And, and it's easier in those moments where I experience something real that I can also see what's unreal. That's a, an entirely different conversation that I love having. <laughs> what is real and what's not real? I mean, it's just amazing that we can even talk about these things, but why not? I have a question for you about how did you become interested in resilience to the point of becoming a researcher? I'm curious about that, Adam. Yeah, thank you for asking that. It's it's a, kind of a funny thing that in the book I wrote a few years ago called Pivot, there was a chapter about resilience. And in order to pivot in life, as I was sharing my own pivots, but also the stories of many other people who've been pivoters, serial pivoters even, whether it's been in their occupation, their profession, or other aspects of their, of their lives, I found that resilience was the key ingredient. Um, it was something that without resilience, I couldn't have succeeded in pivoting out of the law, for example, to find myself an author, to find myself a speaker, to find, you know, that I, I lead uh, trainings and things in the way that I do. I couldn't have done that if I didn't have staying power, if there wasn't energy and an ability to fall down, learn, make mistakes, learn, move forward continually. And, and I use the term resilience in that book, in that chapter. Um, later on, years later, what I found is that the, the bigger topic for me in my personal life was resilience, that many people had been defining me as, a, you know, the pivot guy, the guy who wrote that book and, and, in, and my brand was all about pivoting and things of that sort. Um, and yet what I know now is that the, the bigger story, if you will, uh, as we said, we all tell stories. So my bigger story of my life was a story of resilience that has a chapter in it about pivoting and not the other way around. I mean, resonates true to me, right? That being the almost the foundation, the water, as we were talking about the ingredient, <laughs> the main ingredient for the story or the harmony that we find eventually in life. I love how um, how open you are <laughs> to these topics. <laughs> the, the the more the the more um, prevalent ingredient in all of my pivot stories and all of my abilities to or or just the blessing of having landed on my feet in different in different aspects of my life has been resilience. And that's been the greater ingredient. And pivot is an ingredient, the process of pivoting and what it means and how you do that. Um, those are lesser ingredients, but nonetheless, they're also there and they're also very important. You caught my attention earlier with, uh, in your book too, you mentioned, I think it's called uh, post-traumatic growth. And you just talked briefly about that too and in, in the research that you have done on resilience that showed that some people who have been through traumatic experiences, they become more resilient. I think it has been my case, being 
brought up in a in a very dysfunctional for sure, but very painful environment. Everything about it was just not in harmony per se. So that makes sense. Now that I'm hearing that from you, it makes so much sense that I chose, was my only, probably the brain's only survival mechanism to just to stay calm and try to just navigate those waters <laughs> and not drown. So huh, you made me think about that now. Yeah. Yes. It's, um, I became fascinated with the topic of resilience. And when I began just reading about it, doing my own personal research, you know, I saw that so many people think of resilience as this ability to come back, to bounce back and to endure life's everything, you know, what, whatever, whether it was the trauma of growing up in an abusive family or alcoholic parent or parents or, you know, any number of other things, abandonment. There's so many places that we experience pain and children are, are particularly susceptible to it because they're vulnerable. They are many ways powerless. They are, they're just, you know, so dependent on other people, on adults to take care of them. So they, they feel those experiences uh, acutely. And of course, they are still developing themselves. So they, they haven't been fully formed. They're not fully formed from a cognitive standpoint or um, from an emotional standpoint, a physical standpoint at, at the point when they are traumatized. So, so um, there's no question that, um, that these, these um, you know, how it is that we develop our resilience is, is, is it fundamentally important thing. It's fascinating. And when I was looking at that research and started to think about it, I said, no, I'm not sure I'm buying that. I'm not, I'm not entirely down with it, that that's what it is. It might be some element of it. You know, there are resilient people who certainly bounce back, but, but the way I, I frame it now, and again, this is my story. So I said, <laughs> yes, <laughs> um, yeah. is our capacity to bounce forward. That's where that post-traumatic growth is. Growth is, is where, where we are expanding. In part, it's because it's the way of the universe. It's a universal principle. It's a law that the universe is, is not contracting. It's expanding. And, and we are ourselves ex, uh, a, a element of that. We're part of that. And, and so we are either expanding ourselves or contracting. Um, resilience is expanding. It's, um, it's how it is that we um, are are able to grow, and that's where it begs the question. Okay, I get it, and now, and what does that mean? And what do I do? How do I do that? And that's where our work and our research comes in today, because what we say is that you grow through recovery. You you we all grow in the moments of recovery, in the moments where we're we are resetting, when we are recalibrating, when we are regenerating, when we are restoring ourselves. And, and that's different than suck it up or grit it out, which a lot of resilience conversation has been, you know, just be, be gritty, be tenacious, be a no quit person, you know, that that ultimately will carry the day. And in the midst of an unending, seemingly unending pandemic and, an, you know, it's certainly unending uncertainty uh, where, where uncertainty is 
the new certainty. Uh, we we have to reform our definition of resilience. We we have the opportunity to see that a paradigm that the paradigm is 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 different now. I don't know that the, the that that whole endure it all, grit it out, you know, suck it up. I don't know that that, par- that paradigm ever really worked, but let's just say if it did work, it's day, it's day is past. And what we need to understand now that, that to do that, to just be perpetually gritting it out is a recipe for exhaustion. It's a re- recipe for burnout. And so we can't continue to perpetuate that, that way of doing things because it will lead it will lead us in the wrong direction. Yeah, I love that that you're associating resilience to this state of being open to life. That's truly wonderful. Thank you for doing this work. <laughs> We need to hear to be reminded even. I absolutely love that. It just resonates true. A hundred a thousand percent true. Ah, expansion, that's what life is all about. What is your idea of success these days? What is to be successful to you? Yeah, I'm I'm always kind of thinking, chewing on that word myself, for sure. Um, I feel like success is is how we we share our gifts and share our our um, the, share our energy with others in the world in a in a in a way that is beneficial. That net net is good. For good for people. It's like serve. It's like a meal. We've had a little bit of a, a theme of the ingredients and going so far. So I'll, I'll keep to that. Um, to serve a meal that, that is healthy and that tastes good, that, that is valuable to people, you know, that's success. My grandmother was a great one. I was, I know both of my grandmothers and And one of them in particular, she really loved to cook and, and her cooking was quite special. Um, it was traditional, wasn't, wasn't sort of, you know, anything that you'd get like a Michelin star for or any, you know, but for us, she was for sure, you know, she was a Michelin star, star, uh, chef because the cooking was always just so filled with love and, It always just tasted so great, um, and and I think that that's that's a good example of of the legacy that I would love to be leaving. I would be that people who've eaten my cooking, whether it's through the books or it's in in having heard me speak or been with me in a workshop or something, that that they just go, yeah. I, that guy's cooking, man, it was filled with love and it, and it, and it was nourishing to me at a time when I uh, needed that, craved it, wanted it. So, um, that's, that's how in this moment anyway, I would define success. We almost at the end, but I do have lots of other notes here. Let's see. Yeah, there's something else that caught my attention. Your book was a chapter on happiness. The title is happiness doesn't deliver resilience. Usually is one of my opening questions too, or the closing questions about happiness. Talk to me for a moment about that. Is that the same idea as success? Happiness and success are the same? Yeah, I, I think that we chase 
this thing called happiness. And it's a bit of an illusion. Similarly, you know, with chasing balance, you know, like happiness is, is, if it's so fleeting, it's just, uh, I, I think that when we're, when we are, are seeking more, the, the, the feeling of being peaceful in our, in our own bodies, um, when we are, are seeking, um, a, a sense of being present, like really feeling present in, in, in the moment, um, that that is, that is so much more than happiness. You know, happiness is, um, happiness is important. Um, joy is important. I think joy is a better word for me than, than even happiness as I can, I can experience, I can understand how to calibrate my mind around joy more easily than to, to do so for happiness. Yeah. Like joy is to see my children happy, uh, them uh, experiencing their lives with with um, with some ease and some grace. Um, joy is that childlikeness that I feel bubbling up in me. That enthusiasm for life, for for ex- uh, just looking, you know, looking for more, seeking more understanding. Um, I. I start my day with a ritual of uh, very much the resilience work that, that I, I do these days is all about these r- rituals for recovery. How is it that we mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually create zones of recovery and, and to do that on a recurring basis throughout the day with intentionality, um, not leaving it to chance is, is how I have, crafted or architected, choreographed a day where I experience certain things. And, and, and one of those things is to feel joy. Um, and I start my day with a simple ritual. I put my feet on the floor, like many of us uh, do and, and are blessed to do. And when I do touch down my feet to start the day, the first thing I say out loud is uh, these four simple words that I, I gave a TED talk some years ago, uh, where I revealed the origin of these four words and, and why I actually do start the day with them. But the words are "I love my life." Those are the four words, and and those those words I begin the day intentionally saying them as a place for for me to be present to the to the blessing of that moment, uh, to be thankful, to be in a state of gratitude and thankfulness for the, for that moment, breath, realizing when I'm conscious of that, that as I'm taking that breath, there are people taking their last breath at the same moment in time. So it is truly a blessing is truly sacred as, as we said at the beginning. And, and that produces a feeling. It produces an experience of living that you could call happiness, that I could call happiness or I could call joy um, 
you know, but, but rather than labeling it, I just, I just like to think of it as how I, how I wish to experience myself being right. We said earlier that our purpose in life is to be, so the, it begs the question, well, how do you want to experience yourself being? And I, I prefer, and this is something I've learned in the last 12 years or so, I prefer to be the conscious creator of my own life experience as opposed to just leaving it to default, to happen by happenstance or randomness. I don't believe in, in that at all. And, and to the extent that it does exist, it's not what I'm after. Rather, much more intentional about how I wish to experience being in this moment and throughout the moments of, of the day. So again, the title of your book is Change Proof, Leveraging the Power of Uncertainty to Build Long-Term Resilience. And I have to mention the um, one of the, uh, the chapters that really spoke to me. It's somebody, I uh, was uh, under the mystery of death. Chapter 32, you mentioned somebody, his name is, uh, I never heard about him before. Kendra. Yes, Kendrunk, right. Oh, I absolutely love the quote. You quoted him. If you have it in front of you, Adam, I would love for you to read that passage where he says, I absolutely believe that we have an opportunity. So I have it here. I would love to, for the audience to hear that with your voice. Is that uh, possible? I can send it to you, actually, that passage. I have it in front of me. Oh, uh, wonderful. Okay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it is a long quote. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Here we go. I absolutely believe that we have an opportunity all time, all the time, to reprogram, to recalibrate, to redo, and to address directly some of our fears, our insecurities, our blind spots, our patterns that are not proving helpful. They slow us down. They rob us of time and of joy and of loving relationships. That's our inner work. I'm a work in progress. I need to be working. I need to be doing this work for the rest of my life. That's a strength. It's an opportunity. He summarized to me everything by saying that, which you mentioned earlier about doing the inner work, just getting to know yourself and not being something that's finished, completed. Although I do, it's a paradox because I do feel completed and fulfilled in this moment. But at the same time, there's always something to be curious about it, <laughs> to be playful with, to do. So I love I'm, that message. I might yeah. even say, um, for, my, for me, I use a, a, a word... I love the, the term recalibrate, this idea of calibrating and recalibrating throughout the day. And, and one of the things I share in the book my, is my own practice, which is called a code of conduct. And I, um, I mentioned it a few times in the book about how to create or how I've created this code of conduct and, and how others can too. But um, the word vigilance is really what comes up for me a lot lately, is that our, our work, if we choose to to take it on is, is never done. I mean, and maybe that's a part of what is also difficult for people to, to wrap their arms around, you know, a work that is never done. When, when we often are, are craving completion of things and we want the completion more quickly even 
than ever before, you know, almost instantaneous completion of <laughs> <Yeah>. things. <laughs> and you say to somebody, well, this is a work that's never done. Um, how do you how do you see that as something that is is inherently good and inherently positive and not not see it like as a as an example of Sisyphus pushing pushing a rock up a hill only to find in the next morning that the rock is at the bottom again i mean it, vigilance is is a a gift to us that we can't just get it all done in one shot that we can't just find enlightenment and i don't i just don't believe that there's if you do find enlightenment and i do believe you can find enlightenment it's it's not everlasting in my opinion maybe i'm not enlightened and that's why i see it. um i think you can find enlightenment in the moment and maybe that moment can light up the whole day it, it can be a day like no other day but the next morning when we wake up we have to do the work again to create enlightenment for that day so it's uh you know, it's a great responsibility, but it's a great, it's a great gift. It's, it's the greatest work of our lives, I believe. You see, it's a paradox for me because I, I'm holding, trying to hold two ideas at the same time, that we are already there, if there is a destination for this. And which is, as you said earlier, I love the way you said too, it's to be, it's to exist. So this is already it. We're already there, if we think that way. But then yeah. at the same time, you see, but I call it curiosity. I love this idea of being playful and creative <laughs> instead of calling work. And I do it is work, a lot of work, actually. But it's fun at the same time when I can hold that idea that I'm already there. So it becomes yeah. fun, <laughs> the inner work. So so that's just so beautiful the way you put that. I mean, because it is, it is holding on some level, it's holding two seemingly contradictory thoughts at the same time. Which I, I think somebody once said that that's the mark of an of intel of whatever you call intelligence. That's it, the capacity to hold these competing ideas or thoughts or seemingly conflicting ones simultaneously. I mean, imagine what our world would be like at this moment if, with all of our division, we could simply hold contradictory thoughts simultaneously, without without judgment. That would be hmm, interesting. Yeah, very interesting. And I, I see life itself, it's kind of um, hints to us that, that if you call it supreme intelligence, nature. I mean, life itself is holding everything. If life is like on this planet, if this is life or whatever we call life, then it's holding everything at the same time. The good, the bad, um, all the left, right, everything is happening here. So within this bubble of this thing that we call life. So yeah, that must be some scientists they call intelligence. That's what it is. But we hold that too. We are life, aren't we? There's always that potential to get that, to hold everything and to be the space per se. It's been said in spiritual teachings. That's uh, probably the ultimate teaching or lesson that we learn is to hold everything be the space where everything happens, which is very abstract to me. Sounds very abstract, but it's it's a practice, isn't it? It still feels like a practice in a way. I know it's not, but it feels like one. But it's fun. That's where I I really land in the fun part. So I love the change proof points that you have throughout the book too. That's I have to mention that before we say goodbye. 
that's treat for all of us. So before we say goodbye for today, Adam, would you like to add anything else that we left unsaid or read a passage, another passage in your book? Well, you know what? I, I didn't prepare to read a passage, but I do want to read the dedication because it's very rare that somebody actually asks me about that or, or comments on it. And so um, given the opportunity, I will, I will read the dedication. To all those courageous enough to embrace the unknown. That's who this book is dedicated to. Everything about your work, it really resonated, sounds spiritual. And then spirituality to me is everything. But there are some things that just, they sound, that's that alignment again. So see, everything that you say in your book, so many parts of your book that I have read, it's just resonated that way. And that's what life is all about to me. Yeah, the unknown. To be open. I would not even say courageous. No, use that word, but it is. Yeah, it comes from the heart. So being open. Yeah, carrying an, an open heart. Being open to the unknown. Mm. Thank you so much, Adam. You have, I mean, your work and the way you speak about these things is just incredibly insightful. And the mind stops in a way. It's almost like, oh, this is it. <laughs> and then uh, there's no nowhere to go, nothing to say even. That's, uh, I love when I feel that way. So thank you for being so inspiring. Thank you so much for the wonderful conversation that we've had and for all the beautiful questions you've asked. Thank you for the encouragement, Adam. I love this. My sacred space, I call it. <laughs> so before we say goodbye, where can we find more information about you, your books, products, services, and future projects? Um, AdamMarkel.com is a place for people that are, are have um, would like to learn more about what we do in the world and, um, and might even want me to come and and speak or present to their group. So that's simple. The book, you can go to changeproof.com and you can buy it on Amazon and anywhere else. But if you go to changeproof.com, you can claim these really wonderful bonuses that we created for people that are engaging in this work. So even if you buy it elsewhere, you can go back there and use the, um, use the prompts to be able to, to access those bonus gifts for free. Um, and if you haven't yet, figured out for yourself where your gaps are maybe in your own resilience in those four particular zones, you can go to rankmyresilience.com or resiliencerank.com um, to find out where your, where your baseline is and where, uh, where there may be some room for, for improvement there as well. Wonderful. I'll have those links on your podcast profile too. Thank you so much again, Adam, for your presence here today. And we'll talk soon. Bye for now. My pleasure. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Adam Markle and his work, please visit adammarkle.com. Adam invites you to take the free resilience assessment at learn.adammarkle.com backslash resilience. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.